Through interviews from London to Los Angeles, I hope this podcast will inspire you to embrace your wild side. To keep up with my wild adventures, follow me at suzylindow.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Enjoy the show. My name is Pete Klismet, and that's spelled K-L-I-S-M as in Mary, E-T. And <clears throat> I've been described as having a pretty colorful life, and I suspect that's true. I don't know, because it's the life that I lived, and so uh, it is what it is. But uh, I'd say my adult life started out really when I was 17, and that was when I went in the Navy, and then I um, applied for, tested for, and was chosen to be on, of all things, uh, submarines. And so I spent um, roughly four years in the Navy. Um, we did two Vietnam tours, and one of my stories will involve the end of one of those trips. Uh, when I was getting close to getting out, apparently my entry scores were relatively good because they started waving some serious money in front of me and they started waving uh, the Naval Academy and the Naval Prep School. But as luck would have it, I'd uh, save quite a bit of money. It's not a lot to spend money on. Uh, if you're on a submarine, I was on an old diesel boat. Uh, World War II vintage, uh, which was built just after the war and never sank a ship at all because the war was over. So I elected to get out. I turned down the Naval Academy, thank you very much, and went back to Denver, where Englewood actually, where um, I grew up. And I started college. Um, I graduated in about three years from Metropolitan State. Uh, it was college then, now university. One of the bigger schools in the state, actually. And I graduated from there in the very first graduating class um, at Metro State. So whatever distinction that is, it is. And by the time I graduated, I had a job lined up out in California um, with um, the Ventura Police Department. Ironically, um, having just finished my degree, the reason I went out there is uh, Ventura was the only police department in the United, uh, United States, if not the world, I'm not sure about that, uh, which required a bachelor's degree as a condition of employment. So I went to work there, uh, moved up the ranks a bit, uh, detective, sergeant, um, and while I was there I went to school, uh, continued my education postgraduate at California Lutheran University and then um, at the University of um, Southern California which um, I earned two master's degrees and then I attended uh, Pepperdine University um, and got part of a third and then I decided two is good for me. So 
Um, I spent some time on Ventura PD, and while I was uh, going to school at USC, I was attending classes with some guys from the FBI office in L.A., and we kind of got to be friends, they, I guess like me. And uh, they said, well, why don't you apply? Okay, why not? I had right out of college, but they said, you don't have the experience. So I said, fine, I'll go get it. And I had it, nine years on the PD. Um, so I did the testing, and I thought, well, fat chance this is going to happen. But um, I did the testing. And the applicant coordinator in LA said, well, there are going to be about 35,000 people across the nation uh, that take the tests, a battery of tests. It wasn't just a uh, writing and answering questions. It was a lot of things, psychological interviews. And ultimately, when um, I got a letter from the director of the FBI, it said, you finished fourth in the nation. Oh, my gosh. And then I, at that point, I thought, uh-oh, uh, I may have a decision to make because I was sitting at the top of the lieutenant's list on the PD and close to the top for the FBI. And I decided to go with the FBI. Um, there's a certain amount of mystique or I don't know if romance is the right word, but we'll say it. Uh, about the FBI. And so I did. I uh, wound up going through the academy back in uh, Quantico um, and then got sent to L.A. as my first office. I managed to get out of there and go to uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which, yes, um, you don't have to tell me, a lot of people have. That was a huge cultural change in many ways, but I really liked it. Great place to raise kids. And so I stayed there. The Bureau um, then decided they liked what I was doing and decided they wanted to send me to the first ever class for something called psychological profiling. I got called by uh, my training coordinator who said um, the boss, our special agent in charge, had picked me out of the entire Omaha division, which covers Iowa and Nebraska. And he said, um, I want Pete to attend this school because the Bureau has told me, don't send the guys that are retired on duty like you usually do. I want you to send me one of your best people. Oh, wow. So I was apparently somewhere in that list. And <clears throat> um, so I decided, okay, I'll, I'll try it. I'm somebody that likes uh, to do things, to, to do new things, I guess. So I went through what I call a profiling boot camp. And I chronicle a lot of this in my book, which we'll talk about a little later, by my first book. Um, FBI Diary Profiles of Evil. And Profiling Boot Camp is about right. 
Um, it was like going through Marine boot camp. Not that you had to run and do push-ups and all that stuff, but you had to look at and try to figure out some of the worst, most gory crime scenes and murders that have ever happened in the history of the United States. Oh my gosh. And uh, on a Friday afternoon after classes had started or ended for that week, I got a bunch of guys together in my room and just asked the question, is this stuff bothering anybody? Because we got another week to go and we've had seven guys leave already. Oh my gosh. And everybody said that it was, and I acknowledge that it was too. Um, it was not like I'd seen, never seen dead bodies before. I'd investigated murder cases and you name it, uh, a number of bodies. <clears throat> but uh, I'd never seen anything like I was seeing there. Wow. So once it was all said and done, then I went out uh, back to the field. I was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa at that time. And my territory was Nebraska and Iowa. Um, from one end to the other, it's 765 miles, just for the record. And not a lot of cases popped up. Um, most of them were solved the old-fashioned way, but not a lot of them were, or some of them weren't. And I'll tell you a story um, toward the end of this podcast, which I'll say encompasses what's been called the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the United States. And it was not caused by me. In fact, if they'd have paid attention to me, uh, it probably never would have happened. Okay, so in any event, um, I went on to do a number of um, other cases that I was called in on to, uh, to do a profile um, in Iowa and Nebraska and even some surrounding states uh, because I got a bit of a reputation and no, not that kind of reputation, but I um, had one for being pretty accurate on, on what I did. Okay, so um, I went from there, uh, Omaha Division, I, I actually uh, was transferred at my request out to Grand Junction, Colorado, where I spent my last three years, and lo and behold, uh, not long after that, I got a job after retiring from the FBI, teaching in a college uh, north of Grand Junction, a little town of Rangeley, Colorado. And then I got recruited by Pikes Peak Community College, which is over in Colorado Springs. Um, they wanted a department chair. And so they interviewed a number of people and lo and behold, I wound up number one on the list. So they um, elected to hire me. And so I went over there as department chair. Um, and I did that for a couple of years until I had a little bit of health problem. And then I stepped down from that after I think three years and just taught uh, full time um, at the college as an associate uh, professor 
Finally, I stayed there about 14 years and um, I decided I've spent well over half of my life, if not more than that, uh, working for somebody else. It's time for me to do something different. And so I retired uh, from the college and uh, that was actually another re retirement check from the state of Colorado. So I had the Fed and I had the state. Um, and then I more or less set up a bit of a business and it was a consulting or a profiling business. And it was designed to help law enforcement agencies with cases, with unsolved cases. Um, got a website criminalprofilingassociates.com and lo and behold, people find websites. And so then I started getting calls from some attorneys in the state who wanted me to help them with the case. Um, some police departments. I did a few schools for law enforcement agencies. And so that continues, but I also decided, well, maybe you're not busy enough. Maybe what you need to do is to do some books. So writing is kind of in my DNA plus. Um, I've always enjoyed it. And I had also gone to uh, the University of Iowa Writers Workshop while I was there in Cedar Rapids and um, very renowned for turning out writers. And so I attended that and decided I would, uh, that would all help me. And it did um, my writing career, which is still in progress. But a case that I worked came to a culmination in a very range way and Susie's going to ask me what's the most wild thing that ever happened um, and I will probably I will talk about that case but um, in any event I, I started writing and shortly after I had retired from the college I had a book that was ready and that was FBI Diary Profiles of Evil, which chronicles what an FBI agent does, or at least what one did, and that would be me, in a small two-person, three-person resident agency in Cedar Rapids. And then the second part of it is what the training was for that original group of profilers. What was that all about? And thirdly, then it puts me back into the field and actually working cases. And pretty much the reader gets to walk along with me. And um, I wrote it in such a way that you can assess the evidence that I'm looking at and see if what I'm doing um, is making sense 
and why it's making sense if it is. So I got that book published. I had a publisher pounce on that thing. Once he heard FBI and profiling, I mean, it was like a cougar pouncing on a rabbit. How nice for you. <laughs> a little different for thriller writers. <laughs> it's, it's all... Uh, none of it is fiction. It's all non-fiction. I, I don't have to write fiction. Um, because I've got enough stories up in my head. I've got enough... I, I probably got four more books left up there. And it's still getting a little crowded, so I need to get one out. But um, So anyhow, that went pretty well. And then I decided, well, why don't I write another one? And so I went to work on a second one. Got that done. Same publisher, loved the book. Published it. I have since taken it off the market. Uh, that's FBI Animal House, which is about my very raucous class, um, new agents at the FBI Academy, and I'll readily admit oh my that I was <laughs> leading the charge, or <laughs> certainly involved in the charge, uh, unusual group. Uh, nothing like you would think happens at the FBI Academy. And then finally, I wrote about a case that I was involved in uh, 1998 down in the Four Corners area of Colorado by Cortez Durango. And that was FBI diary, homegrown terror. And that doesn't mean uh, that we had a bunch of um, bad guys, you know, Muslim types that uh, are attacking everybody. Uh, what it meant was three young guys um, that formed their own terror squad and wound up assassinating a police officer. And then the nine-year investigation uh, that ensued, uh, we knew who the people were, and we had recovered um, two of the bodies, uh, but we hadn't found the third one. And it took about nine years uh, before that happened. So... Uh, shockingly to me, uh, every one of the books that I've written so far have won national awards. Wow. That's and uh, shockingly also because I didn't know I was that good of a writer. Um, maybe I'm not. Maybe they like the stuff that I've got in there and the stories because I there's a lot of myself in a couple of the books. <clears throat> In fact, in all three of those, um, which is uh, fun. I'm all about fun. So, anyhow, and my wife says a little crazy, and that's probably true. But um, so we got three done. We got three on the market. Wow. Uh, I got a different publisher for the third book because uh, my first publisher didn't work out well, but. Anyhow, I decided, well, I've got three done. Oh, let's see. What do we do now? Oh, well, let's go with the fourth one. And I decided that what I was going to do is to write the um, sort of the penultimate book 
on something that virtually everybody in the United States is very interested in. And that is um, a book about criminal profiling, what it is. Why do people commit the crimes they do? How do you profile a case? Number of different examples in there, case studies, case histories. Um, and so myself and a psychologist who works with prisoners in the California state penitentiary system, good experience. I told her, um, she's a PhD from Baylor, very bright gal. And I told her, you know, Clarissa, here's the way this went. I put them in there and then you figured them out. And uh, so we both kind of worked hand in hand in a way. But anyhow, Car Clarissa has been fabulous. We just finished the manuscript on that and are waiting for final edits. That will be used as, I said, an ultimate because uh, it will be used as a textbook in colleges and universities. Oh, fantastic. When, yeah, Congratulations. That's a... Yeah, when we get that thing done, we still we still got a fair bit of work to do, but but at least we got the manuscript done, and that's right. sizable. The manuscript uh, is going to wind up being four hundred and fifty to five hundred pages. That's a whole bunch of writing right there. Oh, it is. So anyhow, that's kind of that's amazing. where I am right now. <laughs> well. And if you expected me to say. Hi, I'm Pete Klisman, and I used to profile cases. Hi. <laughs> yeah, I know. Surprise, Susie. <laughs> well, you have quite a resume, I have to say. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Um, I mean, obviously, your work is a wild adventure. Um, what I'd like to know is what your definition of wild is. I think everybody's probably got a definition of that. Um, and you mentioned that several days ago, and I thought about that and I guess my definition of wild would be something completely unexpected that happened to you um, pretty much out of the clear blue sky and you had no clue uh, that that curveball was coming you were waiting for a fastball here comes a curveball and surprise. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I've had, I've had more than my fair share of them. Well, uh, I would think you've lived the definition of wild, <laughs> right? At times. Yeah. Um, it had its moments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, a lot of people think, well, being an FBI agent, I mean, when I tell somebody I've been a, a I was a cop for nine years and I was an FBI agent for over 20, they forget about cop. Mm -hmm. I mean, they focus in on FBI agent. They think, oh my God. So Pete's been running around, uh, you know, chasing aliens and shooting them. Actually, one of my sisters asked me that. Is your job like X-Files? Oh. <laughs> uh, no. She has a, a vivid imagination, I guess. Well, she's very naive. And so I told her, I said, yeah, Mary, it's very much like that. I said, Usually on the way into work, um, I find two or three, and, you know, and I, I shoot them. And then uh, 
When I come home regularly on the freeway, I see three or four. Shoot them too before I get home. <laughs> so then my day is done. Wow. But, but wow. my my job really was um, anything unlike what you would have thought. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there are stereotypes of FBI agents. Um, and I'll use one word, you know, and that is uh, there, if you've watched Criminal Minds, the, the guy that used to be on there, his name was Hotch. And uh, people perceive FBI agents to be like him, you know, real serious all the time. In fact, the word would be tight ass. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was the antithesis of that. I mean, when it was time to get serious, um, I could certainly do that. But, um, you know, we had fun too. So it's, it's a very different, uh, it's a varied job and you can't capture it in, you know, in a, in a couple of sentences, you just can't. Um, but it was fun at times, not always. Dealing with the administration, as most people know, Turns out to not be fun. Uh, I was named the 1999 Law Enforcement Officer of the Year. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. That's a huge award. Yeah, by an international oh my company. Oh. And my office in Denver um, refused to let them pay mm-hmm. to fly me out to San Francisco to their annual conference where I was to be awarded that distinction, which to me is a pretty big thing. Yeah. Uh, But I had to deal with a bunch of jerks. Yeah. (laughs) So in any event, a lot of things, uh, a lot of good things happen. Mm -hmm. um, But a lot of things that aren't maybe quite so good happen as well. Um, Yeah. So I would love to know. Uh, what the wildest, I mean, I'm sure you have books that you could fill with all the wildest things that have ever happened to you, but I would love to hear a couple today, if you've got something to share. Um, I could take that from several different perspectives. One will surprise people that I can take it back to when I was on submarines, and again, people might think, you know, well, what could happen there? You shoot a torpedo and sink somebody. I'm planning on writing a book, which will be um, nonfiction, and calling it Sleeping with Torpedoes. Oh, wow. Because my bunk on the submarine was in the forward torpedo room, and there were, I think, about 16 torpedoes up there and I literally slept right above one huh and uh, are there is there radiation or anything given off by those things no 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 no. they're all they're not nuclear types of things there was nothing nuclear about this old Mm -hmm. World War II Mm -hmm. boat okay they were just the old garden variety uh, torpedoes that you see you know in some of the older movies okay yeah um 
But one story, yeah, there's a lot of stories about the bit. Uh, one story that I always have remembered is we had, <clears throat> we had been um, over in Vietnam, and that means we were in the South China Sea. And we were submerged for about 40 days, and that sub got a little bit rank. So finally we went out and then went we surfaced and then we took off and we went down to Australia and we were to be the first submarine that had ever visited Australia since World War II. Fine, good trip. Everybody loved us. Um, and then we took off and we were coming back and the most logical route was through the Philippines. And most people don't know, but the Philippines encompasses about eight or 9,000 islands. And submarines don't, I mean, except for the nukes, you know, they get on 2,000, 3,000, I don't know how deep they go. Um, but even in a typhoon, we rode the surface because the water down there is as bad, if not worse, than the water up on top. But this morning was a beautiful, um, calm morning. And I was up, um, I had a watch, as did a friend of mine, Tom Rapp, and we had Lieutenant Waterman uh, between us as the officer in the deck. And uh, so we were up in the sail and kind of keeping an eye out. And uh, then we ran into some fog. And the fog, you know, soup doesn't even, I mean, that's an analogy, I suppose, for fog uh, or a cliche. but. I mean, we couldn't see past uh, maybe 50 yards past the bow of the ship. And we're on watch and we're trying to... Oh my gosh, you know, and this scary. Is, this is before the days of all, these, all this modern technology. We had radar and oh, stuff, yeah. but Lord knows what we were going to run into. So, and we didn't know where we were. Huh. Worse yet, I mean, you know, now we could pull out our cell phone. Oh yeah, okay, fine, we're here. Uh, take it. Turn, you know, we didn't know. We, we were lost in the middle of the Philippine Islands. Oh, so how are we going to solve this problem? The captain was surprised. He came up. And so then I spotted a fisherman, and he was on his, paddling along in his catamaran. And... I said, look, you know, maybe this guy can help us. So we started, we turned a little bit and we started going toward this guy. We probably got about 50 yards away before he even noticed us. And then I noticed him look over his shoulder. He sees a submarine. And he sees... <laughs> A submarine, and oh being gosh. from one of those primitive islands down there, oh, yeah. probably thought, oh my God, that dragon they've talked about for years is actually out there and he's going to get me now. This guy starts paddling like hell. Oh. I mean, he was paddling oh, no. like crazy. And finally we got uh, a couple of our Philippine 
stewards um, who spoke Tagalog, the language, to come up on deck to see if they could communicate with him because we weren't sure what language this guy spoke, but mm -hmm. we hoped they could communicate. And um, they did. They yelled and yelled, and <laughs> this guy's still paddling. You know, I don't blame him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd have set land speed records or whatever, <laughs> yeah, right. getting away. But um, anyhow, uh, finally, they got him over to the side of the ship, communicated with him, and then were able to find out what we should be doing, mm -hmm. where we should be going. You know, it was kind of like, okay, so you go up to this island and here, right. and then you take a right, yeah, and then you get past oh that thing. Gosh. You know, like the directions we would get out here in the country. Oh, wow. And you get down to this uh, tree, and it's got some white paint on it, because uh, they're going to, you know, just that kind of stuff. There's a mailbox, and, and then uh, you take a left at that island. <laughs> and uh, so we were very appreciative. And the captain said, we got to do something for this guy. And so he told the two stewards, he said, well, go downstairs, you know, go down below decks and get a couple, you know, get some food, get a couple bags of food. Um, so they did. And shortly they came right back up and they had several bags full of food and they managed to get down to his catamaran and handed the food to him and he put it back and uh, and he was very pleased so probably he didn't have to finish his day fishing because he had all the provisions he needed mm -hmm. but the thing I wonder and the thing I have always wondered is when that guy got back to his village and his wife. And he starts hauling all this stuff in <laughs> yeah. to the village and gives it to his wife. How do you explain this? I know, right? You saw a submarine <laughs> came out of the water. <laughs> oh my God. It was a big hunk, an American submarine, and they yeah. asked me directions. And oh. so then they gave me this food. You know, I can come up with some pretty good stories. I can't yeah. top that one. Like the aliens, you know? So, yeah. it's yeah. Uh, I can't top that one. No, you know. that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm sure you have some from other areas of your life. You've been in the FBI and you're continuing to profile, correct? You're, you're still working. I am. Uh, yeah. I, I work for lawyers sometimes. I work for some police departments and... Yeah, I still I still do some of that. But one of the things I'm going to guess you've never run into is a werewolf. No. You haven't? Not recently. Okay. Probably some <laughs> of the people out there in the audience have. Yeah, maybe. Um, and I mention that because... This is a step out of the Navy, or, you know, from college and then on to the Ventura Police Department out in California. And uh, I was a patrolman. And some of this is going to sound like, boy, you need to check yourself into a mental institution. But um, I had watched during an era of, let's say, the early 60s, there were a lot of 
horror films on. The werewolf, the vampire, the heaven knows what. Mm -hmm. And so we could not avoid going to see it. Get the liver scared out of you and then go back and see it again. So I'm sure I developed a bit of a phobia. Vampires didn't bother me. I thought they were pretty cool. But uh, werewolves scared the liver out of me. And so I developed a phobia. And I think that's the only phobia I've ever had. But, uh, I mean, it wasn't like I'd look under my bed at night, you know, before I'd go to bed and make sure... And, and how old were you when you went through this? I'm going to guess 13, 14 in okay. that age range. Okay. Yeah, sure. About then. <clears throat> so that phobia remained. Uh, it was dormant for a while. But then when I got on the police department and I was on patrol... Um, you know how we boys are. The world is our bathroom. Okay. And that came to bear. Because I would uh, pull off the road into a, you know, country road or something by a tree or maybe not. And then just take care of my business because I didn't want to miss any calls and go to the stupid gas station and have to go potty in there. So <laughs> I was not going to miss a call. I was a young patrolman. Sure. Probably 24 years old. But when I'd get out of the car, I would take my gun out and then I would scan around and look to make sure there was no werewolves out there because they are known to hang out in the country, right? I don't know if you knew that. No. But that's a little known fact about werewolves. Um, they proliferate out in the country and hills. So, in fact, this is the same area where they just had some big fires out there. So it probably got rid of a lot of werewolves, I'm thinking. But in any event, then I would come back to the car. And the other thing, you may know this, is that werewolves are known to jump in a car if it's open. And then once you're in the car, because I saw this in a movie. <clears throat> um, so it must be true. It must be true. Um, <laughs> once you're in the car, then of course they pounce on you, and that's you know. Then you so it's over. Yeah. Right. So I would t have my gun out, and I would open the back uh, where we would put prisoners, and check and make sure there was no werewolves in there, and there, you know, there weren't. And I'd go along my merry way, so everything was fine. So I had I had made sergeant uh, a couple of years years or so after that. And uh, we had a, an accident on the freeway leading into town. And it was a big 18-wheeler. And a witness behind the 18-wheeler said he had been following it down the Santa Paula freeway. All of a sudden, it started swerving from side to side. He said, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. I thought the steering had gone wacko. Mm -hmm. And then it ran right into a eucalyptus tree. Oh, wow. It's not very often when a car or a truck wins a battle like that. Eucalyptus tree is going to win that fight. and did. So um, my officer called me and told me, you know, here's the deal. And... Um, he said, the driver is up at the hospital. And I said, okay, I'm going to go up and find out uh, what's wrong. You know, what happened? So I get up to the hospital, and I'm interviewing the driver. 
pretty much garden variety guy. He had some injuries, but, uh, you know, pretty normal guy. I said, so what had happened? What happened? I mean, what caused you? The witness said you were swerving back and forth. He said there was a werewolf on my hood. And oh my God. He was coming in the window. And so I swerved back and forth. To shake him off. To shake him off. Yeah. Which makes perfect sense. Of course. Yeah, I always do that when werewolves jump on me. And um, <laughs> so I said, well, did that work? He said, no, the world stayed up there. And I said, what did you do next? He said, I figured the only way to get rid of him was to run into that tree. So I aimed for that tree. Oh, my God. And wham, oh. I hit the tree. <laughs> well, did it work? <laughs> well, and that's part of the story. Uh, he, uh, you know, ruined the front of the truck, obviously, going 65 miles an hour. Oh. And so I asked him, where, I mean, I was serious now. I said, with my eyes wide open, yeah. and where did that werewolf go? Yeah, he's feeding into your worst fear, right? Yeah. And, and, but, you know, what happens is, uh, or did, uh, truck drivers would take um, amphetamine tablets. Oh. And if you take a sufficient amount, then you can just start having hallucinations. Sure. He did. Yeah. And his hallucination was my worst, my worst nightmare. Oh my God, that's so ironic. Though. You're just about lost so, it. Wait, what? <laughs> you know? And guess what? Huh. Guess what I did when I went out to my car? You checked underneath. I checked underneath. <laughs> oh checked everywhere. Oh. But eventually, I've uh, pretty much... You've outgrown that gotten, fear? Maybe? Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've outgrown that... Uh, that phobia? Phobia, yeah. Mm. No more, so I don't know that I, I have any more. Okay, yeah, great. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear some more stories. Um, you know, I have to believe there's got to be some, one of them that's related to profiling. Is there? Or what do you have? Let's you talk about of? that one. Yeah? Okay. Um, in February of 1985, that's a long time ago. It's 32, yeah, 32. 33 years ago. Yeah. Um, my assistant special agent in Omaha called me out in Cedar Rapids and said, Pete, I need you to go down to Beatrice, Nebraska. Where's that? Well, it's about 50 miles south of Lincoln. I knew where that was because I'd given some training at a lot of departments in the two states. So I knew where Lincoln was. I said, okay, what's happening? They said, they got a murder down there of an older woman, 68 years old, and they can't figure it out. They can't solve it. Mm. Okay. How long ago was it that it happened? It says, uh, about a month. And they've done everything they could. They've hit the end of the line and they just don't know what else to do. So he said, I need you to go out there, fine. So the next day, I leap in my bureau car and I drive all the way across Iowa, which was about 240 miles, and then down to Lincoln, another 60, and then down to Beatrice, which was another 50. So, you know, by then I've got about 360 miles in and it's getting um, 
you know, towards six o'clock, but I met them. I, I met the police chief, a couple of um, guys from the department, one lieutenant and one detective. And I really didn't know anything about the case. So one of the guys tells me about it, and it is a 68-year-old woman who was in her apartment. Somebody got into the apartment and had sexually assaulted her, both okay. vaginally and anally, oh. and had beat her sufficiently that uh, some ribs were broken, there were bruises on her face, um, and she died. Uh, she had pneumonia, which helped, yeah. or didn't help, right. but she wound up dying. So we've got rape and murder, we've got first degree murder. So they told me what, you know, what that had happened, what they had done so far uh, in the investigation. And then the lieutenant starts telling me, uh, he says, now, we've got several suspects, and let me tell you about them. And I put up a, a timeout sign and made the motion for illegal procedure, oh. <laughs> five-yard penalty on you, because my job as a profiler um, is to tell you what kind of suspect you're probably looking for. Oh, cool. So he said, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Um, so I did get all the reports from them. By then it was fairly late, but I stayed up until some stupid hour of the night and read most of them and then met them down at the PD the next morning. They gave me a conference room. Um, a room of some sort, and I finished looking at all all the crime scene pictures, the autopsy, the, you name it. Every report that was written, which as you can imagine was quite a few over a period of a month. And <clears throat> once I did, now, those of us out in the field that were trained um, to be profilers, and I was in the first class, of profiler, so I'm one of the original. I'm actually second generation, but one of the original field profilers. Um, our job was to collect the information and then uh, send it back to Quantico where they had the profiling unit back there. They would then evaluate everything and then would render a profile on the case Myself and another agent, when we were in training, uh, were talking about that, and, and we'd been detectives on a police department, him, Chicago, me, Ventura, and we both agreed. I mean, if you go out and you can get some information, you don't want to have to wait for some yahoo back east to uh, read these reports, and then three months later, send you out a profile on mm -hmm. the case. I mean, we knew, that's, we knew that's what was going to happen. And so, but they told us, they said, 
hell and be damned, uh, you guys are not out there to profile cases. Well, I paid attention in our profiling class, which I call profiling boot camp. It was pretty bad. In fact, we had seven or eight guys that, uh, that left. We were seeing some of the worst murders you could imagine oh. in the history of the United States. And so uh, some of these guys just couldn't take it. Yeah, didn't have the stomach for it, I would imagine. And I was <laughs> somewhat close to one of them, although as a cop, I'd seen more than my share of dead bodies and I'd been to autopsies, so, you know, I, I could pull it off. But um, anyhow, so I compiled the information. Well, of course, these guys wanted to know preliminarily what I thought. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I'm not going to co uh, commit this to paper because by rule, I've got to send this from here back to Quantico. Mm. But let's go sit down in the conference room and we'll pretend this conversation never happened. But let me tell you what I think. Okay. So we got there and I said, all right, I believe your suspect is a young male. He's somewhere between 20 and 24 years of age. Um, he is probably not a very strong guy, uh, not very big, because his victims, and there have been a few others, uh, not murdered, his victims are older ladies. Now, that was one clue that this guy isn't a very big guy because mm -hmm. he can gain control. How did you get the age? Um, the age came, and that's a very good question. It came about because of the sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Anally and vaginally. And... Whoever did it had ejaculated in both places. Somebody older is not going to do yeah, that. Yeah, had to be a younger guy. That's right. Not going to happen. Plus, okay. the earlier um, incidents that I just mentioned, um, in which he tried attempts, was described as a younger male, and basically, mm -hmm. I paid attention to those too, but. Anyhow, 20 to 24, that just, that's what we learned. Mm -hmm. uh, the things that were done, that's what we learned. Things inside the apartment got out of control a little bit. You could tell by stuff being dumped over. So she fought. Yeah. She fought, mm -hmm. and he had not planned this. This was not planned. This was a very spontaneous thing. It was also uh, driven by anger because oh, of all the beating. Mm -hmm. How much... Do you have to beat a 68-year-old woman to gain control? Mm -hmm. Younger guy. What we would call, uh, in the dichotomy, there's uh, organized and disorganized. Uh, he was definitely a disorganized type to me. And the other thing was, I said, this guy has, or still does, has or still does uh, either live in this apartment building or very close by. Hmm. The guys are there. Well, why do you say that? 
Well, if you look at the sexual assault two times, uh, then it's fair to assume that he spent a little bit of time inside. What does that tell me? What it tells me is he felt comfortable in there. Maybe he'd been there before. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing he knew was that I can go down this hall, out the back door, um, into this alley, take a right at another alley, and go down the next alley to the left. And if a police car were to show up, I'm gone. Mm -hmm. They'll never find me. He's familiar with the neighborhood. Familiar with the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so that tells me he knew a lot about the neighborhood. He had either lived there before or was currently living there. Okay, so there, there was a number of other factors that, that I outlined, but you know, those were three of the important ones. And I've got the entire workup on this profile on my first, in my first book, um, FBI Diary Profiles of Evil. I think that encompasses the last five chapters. Mm. Very interesting case. Okay, so <laughs> I give them a profile. Go back to my office in Cedar Rapids. I wind up uh, sending all that I had back to uh, the profiling unit in Quantico per instruction. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, um, I got a call from the police chief out there three months later. And he said, we just got the profile from the unit. I said, okay. And then in the next couple of days, they also sent the profile to me. So then I had it. So exactly what I thought was going to happen did. Mm -hmm. um, the only, th they took everything I said. Uh, they took it, fait accompli, uh, but then they added a couple of things, which I thought, this is really not their profile, and I would not have included these things, Likewise. such that mm -hmm. this guy may have gone to her services oh. out of guilt, mm. or he may have... I don't know, there was a couple of things that was just sort of boilerplate that they slapped in there and and then sent it out. You didn't think he would he was that type? Or you just couldn't make that kind of claim? I knew he wasn't that type. Oh, you knew that wasn't? How did you know that? Uh, because... Of the anger. Of the anger demonstrated. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, so... I talked to the chief and I said, you know, there's a couple things in here, that being one. Another thing that I predicted was that uh, he would leave town um, within a couple of days after this murder had been committed. And in any event, there were more things, but uh, all of that's in the book. Um, everything I had written was correct. Everything the Bureau had added was not correct. Hmm. So... Um, now, at this point, I have an interest in the case, but it's not my case. So I called on occasion and would talk to the chief or detective or lieutenant or somebody. Okay. 
um, and would talk to them and find out, well, how's, how's everything going? Mm-hmm. You know, have you guys made any progress? And no. Okay. Call, you know, several weeks later. Any progress? No. And uh, so this, this case went cold. Oh, it did. It went cold. Um, oh. it was, it, was it because of all those extra details that they got off track? No. Um, it was just took too long? Um, or a lot of these cases well, just Well, l- let me just say this. All police officers are not created equal. Mm-hmm. Okay, the officers that are in smaller cities um, tend not to have the same experience as an officer that's in a bigger town, like maybe Boulder or maybe Denver, mm-hmm. Fort Collins. And Beatrice is a small town. I mean, it's only 25,000 people. How many homicides said they had there uh, in the previous five years? Zero. And you don't gain the experience you need um, by simply going to a school. You've got to investigate some crimes mm-hmm. and learn from them, but also from the classes that you take in homicide investigation, blah, blah, blah. So let me shorten the story. Um, the case goes for four years. Oh my gosh. Four in cold years. status. Oh. By then I had left Omaha. I had left Cedar Rapids. I'd been in Omaha. I left Omaha. I checked a few times. Uh, no progress. And so I had gone on my merry way out to Grand Junction, Colorado, which was going to be my final resting place in the Bureau. And I just lost, you know, contact with it because all of a sudden I'm doing a lot of other things. I've got a lot of other cases that are my own. And isn't it true that with profiling, it's your job to just give them the profile. It's not your job to solve the case. You're just an instrument for them, correct? That's right. Okay. I'm an inter... Um... Instrument. <laughs> That's right. Yes, one of those. <laughs> and... Uh, but more so, the profile itself is a tool. It's part of the investigation. I mean, if you look like a, if you look at the investigation like a pie, mm-hmm. uh, then you uh, cut the pie into sixteen pieces. Then the profile is, let's say, one sixteenth mm-hmm. of that. There's a lot more involved in an investigation. Okay. A lot of people want to shorten the process, you know, the third day, call profiler, and, you know, that's not the way it works. But, uh, um, so after four years, what happened then? Nothing. They didn't, they just stayed cold and they never saw the murder. Cold. Wow. So what I, I came to find this out with what I call the most shocking telephone call I had ever gotten in my life. Reason, I'd been in Omaha for six years. I then went to Grand Junction for three, four years, retired. Then went to a college up in Northern Colorado, a junior college, community college, uh, where I taught criminal justice for three years before I wound up uh, getting offered the job as department chair over at Pikes Peak Community College, which is 
one of, if not the largest um, community colleges in the entire state. And so, I mean, by then, this thing is long gone, right? Mm -hmm. So it's 2007, oh 10 years ago, gosh. or roughly, 2007, yeah. right? I'm sitting in my office one day and getting ready for a class that afternoon. Phone rings. Hello, this is Pete. Same way I always answer it. Uh, yes, is this Peter Klismet? Yes, it is. Nobody calls me that except my mom. Oh. She wasn't alive. Um, are you the same Peter Klismet that uh, did a profile on the case out in Beatrice, Nebraska? And when I heard, is this Peter Klisman, or is this the same Peter Klisman, I thought, oh my God, what is this bringing forward to me? And uh, I said, yes, I am, yes. Um, do you remember that case uh, involving Helen Wilson? I said vaguely, I mean, it's been over 20 years, but yeah, I mean, I do remember and you did the profile. Would you stand by that profile right now? I thought, oh boy, what am I stepping into here? And I said, well, if I said it then, I would stand by it now. Whatever I said then, I would stand by because I knew the facts then. Right now, I couldn't give you a new one. But she said, are you aware what's happened with this case? No. And she said, so you were not aware that six people were arrested, indicted, five pled guilty oh. to murder. Oh my And gosh. one went to trial and oh. was found guilty of first degree murder. Wow. And as an aggregate, all of these six people went to the Nebraska State Penitentiary oh. for, well, I said as an aggregate of uh, 70 years. Oh, wow. I mean, they served hard time. <sighs> for a crime. They didn't commit. They did not commit. Oh, my gosh. Oh. And she asked me, do you believe it would be possible that six people would have committed this crime? I said, no. It was a small apartment, and it um, would have looked like a herd of wildebeests had gone through if there was that many people in there. Well, wouldn't people have heard that, too, if you had a huge amount of people and the screaming and the yelling and the... Yeah. So... I would think so. Yeah. So three women, three men... Oh. were convicted and sent to prison. Mm -hmm. uh, 20 years, 20 years, 20 years, 5, 5, and 5, which um, they, they were serving, added up to 75 years, roughly. And they all pleaded not guilty, I would think. Oh, no. Oh, that's the interesting part. <laughs> oh, no. That's the what? really bad part. Oh, no. And again, the story of how this all unfolded is in uh, FBI Diary Profiles of Evil as the last, last six chapters. Uh, it's hard to understand this, but 
an investigator from the sheriff's department and deputy district attorney browbeat. They they started picking the low hanging fruit mm -hmm. of the suspect list and. Um, They did, uh, and some of these people, the first one was kind of mentally deficient, and they convinced her that she was involved mm -hmm. uh, and was at Helen Wilson's place that morning. Mm -hmm. um, and she, they got a statement from her, um, and, and it went down the lines. It was like, line. It was like a row of dominoes, click, click, click. And they were successful in getting five of them to admit to a crime they didn't commit, but worse yet, um, to plead guilty oh. to a crime they didn't commit. Wow. And then, worse yet, to testify in court against Joseph White, who was the strong one of the group, and said, I didn't do this. Oh, God. Didn't matter. They got up on the stand. Now, remember, this is a small community. Yeah. Um, uh, got up on the stand and they testified, yes, Joseph was there, Joseph did this and this, this, and they convicted him and off they all went to prison. <sighs> now, this is 1985. The advent of DNA had not started until, guess what? 1985. Oh. It didn't exist. I mean, it uh -huh. existed. But we didn't have that much, if any, knowledge of it. We mm -hmm. certainly didn't, and they were working on it over in England, and uh, we've developed a lot more information on it. But they didn't have DNA at the time. They didn't have anything to match that semen in the body, mm -hmm. which they preserved, thank God. Oh, they um, did. Mm -hmm. they, they preserved that for, lo, those many years. So, finally, after serving a, a lengthy period of time, uh, the defendant that was convicted in trial raised enough hell mm -hmm. uh, with the state, with everybody else, after he's been in jail, prison, for 20 years, that they said, let's do this. Let's review the evidence and let's, oh, we've got some DNA. Well, let's compare that to any of these six defendants oh, and see if they would have done it. The DNA did not match any oh. of those people. Oh my God. So oh, that's an atrocity. It's, well, it's been called, and I would tend to agree, the mm -hmm. uh, biggest miscarriage of justice in the history of the United States. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Now, you could probably argue that if somebody was convicted and put to death and later found out that he hadn't done the crime, that's a big miscarriage of justice. But for six people six to serve people. 70 years, 75 years. And how long were they in prison before they, how much time did they serve? Uh, some of them had gotten out and served their sentence and oh. uh, three of them were still in and had been there for 20 years. Oh my God. Pretty bad deal. So. So the DNA was the break in the case. The DNA was the ultimate break in the case. Now, that's bad enough, but 
when they looked back and they compared the DNA with one of the suspects that they had eliminated, they found out that this suspect was 22 years old. Oh. That's relatively close to between 20 and 24. Right. Smack dab um, in the middle. Yeah. He was a tall, thin male. That fits. Mm-hmm. He lived in the apartment at oh. some time or lived very near. Um, he had an aunt who lived a floor or two above, and he lived with her for a period of time mm-hmm. and was living with her then. Um, everything I said in that profile was correct, yet they failed oh. to look back on it. So oh my once my first book came out, then the next thing I know, my phone is blowing up sure. with attorney calls. And uh, because they were representing these people for being incorrectly um, oh, convicted. Right. For crime. They didn't Can, follow your profile. No. Mm-hmm. And when you're taking over a cold case, first thing you do is you look back mm-hmm. and see what had happened with the investigation. Mm-hmm. Oh. They didn't. Oh, they didn't. And sitting right there um, as probably, you know, one of the most recent reports was uh, that profile that had been oh. done. Now, did that Never kid get caught then? Or do you want to so, leave that for the end of your story? <laughs> no, your uh, that, that's fine. Because probably one of the most disgusting parts of the whole thing uh, was that this suspect was had left town and was down in Oklahoma. And then about seven years after the crime was committed, uh, he died of AIDS. Oh, he did. Oh. And so they couldn't charge him. They couldn't convict him. They couldn't exhume his body and put him on trial. So... Fate took care of him. Right? Yeah. uh, Fate took care of him. So these people filed a lawsuit and the first case, uh, the first lawsuit was hung, it was a hung jury. Mm. I called the attorney that had contacted me who wanted me to be a witness. I said, I mean, this sounds kind of snarky and kind of overconfident or Oh, my wife's got another word for it, and she's right, arrogant. But I told him, I said, if you had called me as a witness, you wouldn't have hung that jury. Mm -hmm. Because I knew what I was talking about, and I nailed this guy. Why didn't they do that? That doesn't make any sense. Attorneys don't make sense, uh, typically. But anyhow, a couple years go by. Now, we're on to 30 years Oh. And it's uh, 2015, a couple recent. of years ago, mm-hmm. when it finally went to trial, civil court. Uh, I didn't justify, uh, but whoever did, did something right, because they wound up these six, well, I say six, One of them had died in that intervening 30 years, but uh, the five remaining defendants uh, 
received a settlement of $27 million. Oh, oh my gosh. And it was rumored that, and correctly so, I would think, um, that amount of money would completely bankrupt Gage County, Nebraska. Hmm. They'd have to sell, they'd have to sell the entire county. Oh. And so I don't know where that stands right now. I know they've appealed the amount, uh-huh. which, you know, defense attorneys always do. But uh, but it's ongoing. Uh, as far as I know right now, it's pretty much settled unless oh, okay. they're still going to court. But I call it um, the 30-year wow. murder that could have been solved in six months. Oh, the worst wow. miscarriage of justice in the history wow. of the United States. I was involved in it. So I've had many, many people ask me over the years, uh, because they're so fascinated by the FBI, what was the most interesting case mm-hmm. that you ever worked on? Mm-hmm. And frankly, I could whip out a number of cases, but I didn't find them all that interesting, and I don't know if other people did either, I didn't care. But um, finally, when this was said and done, there is no question in my mind that this was, far and away, the most intriguing and the most unusual and the most wild case. Wild. And that fits your definition. Yes. Because I got the surprise of my life when I got that phone call from that reporter in Omaha that told me, do you realize what has happened with this case? And it was, that was definitely an, oh my God, moment for me. And I haven't had many of those in my life. Wow. Well, that is certainly a wild case for sure. I mean, what a miscarriage of of justice. But, you know, it just goes to show everyone how important profilers work is and that uh yeah my dog is trying to play with us now (laughs) oh no sorry and um but yeah but uh anyway is there another story that you have to tell or are you winding down i have a few questions if you i have a quick one okay and i don't know if this fits the definition of wild that's all right it fits the definition of. Go ahead and. Um, oh, it. Hang on one second. I'm gonna go put. I'm gonna have to edit this. I'm gonna go and put her in a room because I never have to pick her up while I'm sitting here ever. So she's just all wound up. I'll put her in her um, bed and then we can finish this up. Okay. I'm just gonna let that thing record. It only take a minute. She'll be fine. Come on, Rox. It's just that she's going to start whimpering, and then it's going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. All right. Maybe if I, um, if 
I locked her up and she heard us out here after a while, she'd be whimpering anyway. And I thought, yeah. God, maybe I should have put her in a kennel for the day or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so she here, wanted her mama. Back. She so, wanted her mama and her new buddy. Yeah, she did. She's got a new buddy that likes her. Exactly. So I would love to hear if you have another quick story, and then I have a few questions to follow up with. Okay, yeah, I, I've got a lot of other stories, but I thought about this quite a bit after you and I talked first, and um, there was one that came immediately to mind. Does it fit the definition of wild? I don't know, but it fits the definition of funnier than hell. Oh, that's um, good. <laughs> I was out, I was in Cedar Rapids at the time, but I was out uh, covering some leads and some of the outlying towns and houses and different offices would send um, a lead to interview somebody. Well, this particular lead was a fugitive lead they had, uh, from L.A. They had a fugitive um, that they wanted me to look and see if they could get some leads on to help find him and get him in custody and go through the process. Fine. So I had the communication from LA. I had a picture of this fugitive and an address of somebody that knew him that I they wanted me to go out and talk uh, to this person. So um, I found the place way out in the country and uh, parked, went up to the door, knocked on the door, an older lady answered the door. And I told her, I said, uh, hi, I'm Pete Klesmet, and I'm from the FBI office in Cedar Rapids. Uh, and at the same time, you've got to appreciate the timing of all this, but at the same time, I was getting my creds out, my credentials out, to show her <coughs> that I wasn't some Hoover salesman or something. Oh, yeah. And I, I, but I'd already told her I was looking uh, for a fugitive. So I flipped my creds open mm-hmm. and her your on there is uh-huh. my badge and my picture. Sure. So she's looking at the picture and staring at it. And she says, no, sir, I haven't seen him, but he does look like a pretty bad guy. Well, that's somebody that looks like a bad guy. It was me. That was my picture oh. on the creds. <laughs> God. <laughs> so this guy looks like he looks like a bad hombre. If anybody's going to be a fugitive, it would be him. She didn't see the similarity <laughs> between you and your picture. <laughs> she didn't. Might have been in shock. I don't know. Um, Iowa, oh. Iowa is. You know, it's, it was a good place to be, uh, but it was oh, somewhat unsophisticated. So funny, yeah. And uh, so then I, you know, whipped out the picture of the real fugitive, and I said, "Well, uh, this this is the guy. Have, have you seen him? Do you know yeah. him?" No, 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 I don't. And so I, I did refrain from laughing. Yeah. Um, until I got out to my bureau. Oh car. my god! And then I couldn't stop all the I know, way back. To, I- Cedar Rapids. Looks like a really bad guy. Looks like a bad old friend. Well, okay, so I just have a few questions to follow up with. Okay. Um, I'm just wondering um, if you've ever met any of these murderers 
after the fact. You have you you must have seen them in court or something, but you know, like if you have you ever had have you ever been face to face with one of these murderers? Or do you not have to go through that part of the case? Um I've been face to face with a fair number of them. Oh you have. Okay. Um maybe helping um the detectives or mm -hmm. somebody uh, they would ask me, can you help us interview this guy? Oh. Because there's some things that I know mm -hmm. that may be able to help with an interview. So, you want to get her? No, no, go ahead. Okay. Keep going. So, yeah, I've, I've sat in on more than my uh, fair share. Yeah, and then I, I, um, I just wondered, you know, that must be really unnerving in some cases. But then at the same time, you're probably checking out body language and all those nonverbal uh, um, behaviors that, that they might be exhibiting, right? I mean, well, is that a say, part of it? You, you say it's somewhat unnerving, and I assume you mean that applies to me, but... Um, it was never unnerving to me. Well, that's because your job. I, yeah, <laughs> it would be yeah. unnerving for me, I guess. Well, because I was too busy trying f to find ways, and usually with some success, mm -hmm. of making you know them uh, unnerving or put yeah. them in that kind of uh, situation. And I would do some uh, really different things. Like I would have... You know, the gray metal file cabinets that you've got. Mm -hmm. um, before that person would come into the room, I would have the person's name and stick it in one of the front things. And then I would put um, like Roth evidence in, mm -hmm. in that next one. And then I'd put um, something else on there so they could definitely look at it and see... So I would kind of stage things a little bit and do some little, um, some little nasties. And there's quite a few others I pulled that worked. Oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, yeah. okay. So um, I have to believe since this is sort of such a big part of your life that you've run into just acquaintances or, you know, people, um, writers at conferences, ha ha ha, like me. Where you where you notice some strange behavior that kind of gives you a red flag? Have you ever, um, have you ever, you know, felt that way about just everyday people, or are most people most people are pretty normal, I guess. Occasionally, I have um, done that, mm -hmm. but one of the most common questions I'm asked. Mm -hmm. is, are you profiling me? Right, I can imagine. Now, there's a very easy answer to that if you apply some common sense. And the answer is, we profile each other. Mm -hmm. You make a decision very quickly. Do you like this person? Do you think they're um, an intelligent person? Uh, are they somebody who you would choose to go out and have dinner with and enjoy? Um, so we profile each other. Mm 
and probably more now with social media, people stalk each other. You know, we call it stalking, but you yeah. can look up just about anyone, Google their name and get all kinds of information. So. Yeah. But I, I, I have to be kind of one-on-one -on -one with somebody uh, to make those kind of decisions. And I happen to be the type of a person who, by my very nature, um, when I meet somebody, I automatically like them. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not everybody, but close to everybody. Until they give me a reason not to. And so we profile each other mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah, that's good. So uh, was there anything else you wanted to add to this? Because otherwise I just have one more question. We're okay. winding down. Yeah. Okay, so... Is there anything wild you would still like to do? I mean, it could be anything uh, outside your profession, someplace you want to go, or, you know, bungee jumping, you know, anything that you might still see in your future as a wild adventure. Well, one of the things, I mean, I've really enjoyed um, 10 years as a police officer, I enjoyed. Uh, 20 years in the Bureau, you know, I didn't enjoy every second of it, but I mean, I, I enjoyed what I did and my brother and sisters and uh, everybody that knows me said, you were perfectly cut out to do those things. You've got the right personality and you should, that's what you should have done and I'm glad you did it. I, and, and I am too. I, I think it, it was the right choice for me. But one of the things I really wanted to do and regret is when I got done with college, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. Oh, you have a great voice for radio. Everybody can hear that. Yeah. <laughs> and I had an opportunity to do that. Oh. And uh, by then I had my degree and I had an offer from the Ventura Police Department. And it's like yeah. bird in the hand versus some wish. Um but that would have been the same era that some of these very famous broadcasters came out of. Mm -hmm. uh, Vern Lundquist and um, Lord knows who else, Vince Scully. And that's really what my, the thing I would have loved to do. Uh, so maybe your, been... your wild adventure could be starting your own podcast where you could have your own radio show. See? Could that be. That could be a possibility. Could be, but uh, I've got enough things to keep me yeah. occupied. Like You've got those new books. I've right. got, mm -hmm. yeah, four books. Right. And if no one caught that, um, it's FBI Diary Profiles of Evil. Mm -hmm. uh, my second book, I reeled in to re-engineer, to reimagine it. Um, but FBI Diary, Homegrown Terror are the two that I've got out on the market. Uh, they're available through Amazon, uh, Barnes right. & Noble. May not have them on the shelves, but they can get them quickly. You can get it online. And, oh, yeah, you can get it sure. online. Yeah, Amazon's got them. You can just punch it in. And, um, you know, if you look, you will notice that both of those books have five-star ratings across the board, oh, which yeah. is as high as you can do. 
Yes. Uh, so again, I didn't realize I was that good of a writer. You're natural. Maybe I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've got it in my DNA. My mom was a very good writer too. She did well, my books. It's that good training. Yeah, my dad was a very bright guy too. So yeah, yeah well, it's kind great. of in my DNA. Mm-hmm. Well, I look forward to reading those. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think we've done pretty well. Yes. Well, we've thank you so through. much. Yes. Thank you so much for uh, letting me interview you on the wild side today. And I'm sure that all our listeners are happy to have met you too. So thank you very much. Very glad to be here. And uh, if we get a chance to do it again, be glad to do it. Oh, I would love Down that. Down the line. And right. I suspect I'll see you at the conferences. Yeah, April. probably. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Susie. Production and musical score of The Wild Side by Kelly Lindau. Visit my website at suzylindau.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram or tweet me about the show at suzylindau and I'll follow you back. If you enjoyed The Wild Side, be sure to tell your friends, family, or anyone who will listen. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks so much for listening.